All right, everybody, let's gather around and we'll gather around God's precious word and turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll continue our study of this great book. Um, and uh, we'll continue it this morning in beginning in verse 9. So it'll be the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 9. And uh, we're backing up just a little bit, just for context sake. And I've uh, got a lot of scripture I want to share with you this morning. And I've got it printed out here in front of me. And what might be helpful, most helpful, is that maybe you just write down the references. And maybe not even, I don't think we're going to be able to turn to every one of them. I'll just read them to you. And you can write them down and reference them later if you, if you feel led to. Uh, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 9. Will you stand with me? In reverence and respect for God's precious word as we read it together. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Therefore, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair... His head and hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are in the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are in the seven churches. That's the Word of God. Thank you so very much. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Last week, the title of the message was, Then I Turned. And that comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. We talked about and made the observation that while God could have done anything and can do anything He sovereignly wills to do because He is sovereign, appeared behind. He appeared standing behind John. He was behind him. He could have very well appeared right in front of him and spoken directly to him. But he appeared behind him, and I think that's symbolic for a number of reasons, not the least of which is. Is that John was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He was a believer in relationship and fellowship with the Lord. And evidence of his relationship and fellowship with the Lord is, is that he turned aside. He turned around. It mattered to him that this voice was speaking. It mattered to him to get a vision of where this voice was coming from. It mattered to him. And that should be our disposition toward God's revelation of His Word. That can be. That is the disposition of somebody who's in relationship and fellowship with the Lord. It is not the disposition of somebody who's in relationship but out of fellowship. And certainly it's not the disposition of those who have neither. So this... Apostle was obviously in relationship and fellowship with the Lord, and he bothered to turn around. He bothered to turn around, and we are doing that when we read this book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're turning around and turning aside to see Him. This book is not just about, this is not really about end times per se, but it's about the revelation of Jesus in the end times. He is the subject matter. Let's don't make the end times the subject matter because we'll miss the thrust of the book. The whole Bible message is missed when the Bible is viewed any other way. 
The Bible is a hymn book, and it's about Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, really, from cover to cover. And then we find out in the end what anchors us right now in the present, and that is He is victorious. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And John turns around. He bothers to turn, which I pray that we're bothering to do. He bothers to turn, and what does he get but a vision of Jesus Christ in His glory. And the vision of Jesus Christ, I would like to look at this morning through the title that I'm about to share with you here, and that is, In the Midst. In the Midst. Look at it. He turned, he says, to see the voice that spoke with me, and having heard, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man. This is John, who's just like us. He's a, he's a man just like us, but he's converted, and we're now together and united with him. And he says, I'm just like you. Look at verse 9. I'm your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Christ. That word patience could be translated perseverance in some of your translations. It means this. It, re- it means to remain under. It means to patiently endure difficulties without giving up. And the devil knows the power of perseverance. He knows the power of perseverance, which is why he does everything he can to get us or convince us to give up. John had a reason to be discouraged. He was exiled onto a penal island He had preached faithfully the gospel and it was the faithful presentation of the gospel that got him on that island. It was being in the center of God's will, walking in God's will, that got him on that island. But while there, he had the spiritual sensibilities to know this, that all things work together for good to them who who love the Lord and who are the called according to His purpose. And that purpose is that He is predestined to be conformed to conform us into the image of His Son. So, he's persevering, and he's calling us to persevere, and I have to tell you, the scriptures make this clear, whether we believe this or not. Sometimes, the only thing you know is that God's with you, but that is enough to know. It's enough to know. He is here right now, as a matter of fact. And the promise that he's in the midst, the promise that he's active MacArthur, in his commentary on this section of Scripture, is so rich and so good. I want to share some of the observations he made with you this morning. And that is, that as we look at this description of Jesus, this vision that John had, this heavenly vision of our glorified Lord, we see in the vision attributes, certainly, of Him. And then we see in this vision things He does on behalf of the church. Jesus Christ is not up there, distant and far removed at the Father's right hand in heaven, idle. His work of redemption is finished. But the playing out of that work of redemption is still going on. And He's called us to His bosom and He's called us to Himself. And there are some things that He does on behalf of the church that are seen in this vision. Number one, number one is that He empowers the church. He empowers the church. Now look at it. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. He's right in the middle. Everything, everything that Jesus requires you, and I of in fellowship with Him. He's the fulfillment of. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything He requires. Jesus is my life. The Christian life is not living a life that models Jesus. The Christian life is allowing Jesus to live His life through us. He is present within us. Look what He promised in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And look how he tags it at the end. 
And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are not alone. It might seem that way sometimes. Sometimes the Christian life can be like so isolated. I remember one time in a particular season of my life when I was going through some difficulty and I didn't get any calls from some friends that I thought would call me. And I knew that I was going through a difficult time. And I remember going into my basement just crying out and saying, Lord, I'm hurting desperately. And I know you're with me, but it doesn't seem like anybody else is. And come to find out, I didn't know this, but behind my back, the group of people that I thought would contact me were told by somebody else not to. But God used that because it anchored me in His presence. And I found out in that experience that what I so longed for, the companionship that I later got and the affirmation and the help that I later got, He didn't give me so I would look to Him. I'm grateful for that. At the time, I resented it. But now I rejoice over it. He did that to show me that He is enough. Corey Tim Boone, and we talked about this, and I believe she was the one that coined the phrase, is that when you begin to find out that Jesus is all you need, it's when you get to a place where He's all you have. We're so prone to rest and, and, and to lean on things other than Him. And sometimes we don't understand that we're doing it until those things are gently taken away. Lovingly taken away. Lovingly put aside or lovely put, lovingly put off so that God shows me that you know what? You're really not relying upon me. And I'm putting you in a position to teach you to do just that. Don't fret if you're in the middle of one of those times. Don't fret if it seems isolated and alone. Jesus did go to the cross without one of his followers going with him. And he did that so that you and I could live the exact same way because he lives inside me. He's in our midst. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, in dealing with unrepentant sin. In the, in, the, in, in the church. Look what God says about that. If a brother, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two witnesses along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse... To listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And listen to this part. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there... I am in the midst. We're gathered together in His name this morning. And the Bible contextually says that when the church acts to deal biblically with unrepentant sin, that heaven is on our side. That the decisions we make, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, the things He leads us to do, He sanctions, endorses, and empowers. And you know what? According to the Scriptures, even though the devil would lead us to believe otherwise, that's enough to know. When it gets down to it, if I just know that, Jesus is with me, that's enough to know. And sometimes that seems like the only thing we do know. And we often lose sight of. But it's enough to know. It's enough to know. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and some of you share this love for this verse, in the Amplified Version is this. This is the best translation of it. This is the best translation of it. This is accurate. This is from the Amplified. If you, if, you, if you really want to get the thrust of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, you have to do it from the Amplified Bible. And it says this, Let your character, your moral essence, your inner nature be free from the love of money. Shun greed. Be financially ethical. Being content with what you have. What do you have? Couldn't it be better said, who do you have? Who do you have? We grow in our contentment with who we have. It frees us from loving things we'd otherwise love. And who do we have? We have Jesus. So here's what he says. Be content with what you have. For he has said, this came from the mouth of the Lord, I will never 
under any circumstances, desert you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support, nor will I in any degree leave you helpless, nor will I forsake you or let you down or relax my hold upon you, assuredly not. He just emphasizes over and over again this explosive verse that says, let me tell you something. I, when I said I'm going to be with you, I meant it. We talked about this many times before when I've had the privilege of maybe being there at harvest time when somebody came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I'm always honest with them because God's honest with them, especially if they're coming out of a really tough situation. So let me tell you something. As of this day, right now, your life, could very well get harder than it was when you walked in here. It may not get better. As a matter of fact, there's a good probability that it might get even more taxing and difficultly difficult after this decision. But I want to share something with you that you'll come to appreciate more now than you understand, and that is this. God never promised you that there would not be difficulty. As a matter of fact, He promised there would. But here's what He did promise. That you'll never again face it alone. That might not mean a lot to you right now, but in the coming days, if you receive that by faith, it will. It will. Isn't that the truth? That's why we're able to do all things. Philippians 4.13 I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul said, you know what the secret to my contentment is? I've had a lot and I've had abundance, and I've also been in situations where my life where I had nothing. But here's what I've learned out of this. The way that I can be content, regardless of the situation, is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because He's present with me. He's my life. He's in the midst. He's right in the middle. He's not distant, far removed. It's suffering, our pain, our difficulty, our choices, and the consequences of them. Jesus said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus lives inside the believer. You go nowhere without him. You face nothing alone. You have eternal power. The creator God of the universe, who is your redeemer, and your daddy is always with you. He's in the midst of the church. Praise his holy, worthy, trustworthy name. And then we touched on this a little bit last week, but he not only empowers the church, but he intercedes for the church. Look at it in verse 13, if you will. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a gold band. This is the picture of Jesus as our eternal high priest. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way that we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Think of this. There are seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross that are recorded for us in the four Gospels. You put them together, you come, there are seven one of the seven statements he made was to take care of his mother. He said, Behold your mother. Behold your son. Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to John. Okay, so that means that John's at the base of the cross. He's hearing this. If anyone, if anyone would know and appreciate this truth, it would be him. Because he was eyewitness to his suffering. He was eyewitness to his rejection. He was eyewitness to the false accusations. He saw it all. And when he hears that his high priest and yours and mine is sympathetic to all our weaknesses because he went through everything, he knows what he's talking about. He was an eyewitness to the suffering that Christ did. 
And he gave record of it in the Scriptures. And as a result of it, we're eyewitnesses to it if we receive it by faith. Isn't it enough to know that when you pray to Jesus, and when I pray to Jesus, did you know that I cannot describe anything to Him, any struggle, any pain, anything that I'm going through that He does not identify with? Empathy is a great thing. Sympathy and empathy is a great thing. We rally around people who seem to understand maybe something that we've been through. And sometimes you feel like there's no one that really understands exactly. But here's the truth. When you and I talk to Jesus in His high priestly ministry, He sympathizes with everything. So when He talks to the Father, He didn't just go, well, here He comes again with the same old thing, Lord. I am just, I'm sick of this and I know you are, but we'll help Him out reluctantly. His intercession must go something like this. Father, He's struggling through this issue. And I understand that. I know what it's like to take on human flesh. I know what it's like to go exactly, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what I went through. And let's help Him. He's not trying to talk a reluctant God into helping. But He is empathetically and sympathetically getting our request to Him. Have you ever been in so much pain and so much confusion and so much doubt and so much fear in your life that you didn't even know what to pray? I have. I just said, Lord, I'm just telling you right now, I don't know what to say to you. And what do I have? I've had the encouragement that girded with this high priestly robe, Jesus with the golden sash is interceding for me. And not in a way that's hostile or understand, ununderstanding or unappreciative of what I'm going through, but in sympathy and empathy. Isn't that a great thing? Did you know that the Bible says that a husband, if he doesn't recognize... The weaknesses of his wife cannot properly under, intercede for her. The Bible says that a husband's prayers are hindered for his wife if he doesn't sympathize or empathize with her weaknesses. If you resent or I resent my wife's weaknesses, first of all, I've lost sight of the fact that I have them. But then it impairs me. It hinders my intercession. Now what's the takeaway from that? In order to effectively intercede for somebody, you have to be sympathetic over their weaknesses. Because that's most like Christ. Because He's, in the, he's sympathetic toward yours. That's huge. I'm so grateful we have a loving, caring God like that. Hebrews 7, 22 and 25. Jesus has also become a guarantee of a better covenant. Now we have become Levitical priests. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But He remains forever. He holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is always able to save those who come to God through Him since He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is at the Father's right hand and His eternal ministry is to intercede for the saints. Praise God for that. I have an eternal prayer warrior. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, intercedes for me for groanings that are too deep for words. So we've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all involved in talking to themselves about everything that concerns you. And when you and I get into that intercession, we're in a loop. That's a, we're in a conversation loop that's already started. We're entering into a thread that's already going. And you know how long it's going to go? Eternity. Eternity. The Bible says the Messiah has appeared, Hebrews 9, 11-14, has appeared. The high priest of good things that have come in the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more? with the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse us and our consciousness, consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. God readily receives the intercession of His Son because His intercession is accepted. And the reason His intercession is accepted is because His sacrifice was accepted. And the way I know His sacrifice was accepted is when God raised Him from the dead. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, you will wear a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his son so they may serve me as priests. There is the Old Testament picture of this New Testament reality. He is serving as our high priest. Hallelujah. He prays for you. He prays for me. 
The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4, He is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen garments are to be put on his body. He must tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. This is the earthly high priestly ministry. It's part of the old covenant. To give picture of the eternal heavenly high priest that Jesus occupies, not according to the Levitical high priest, but according to the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priest who lives forever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Not only does He empower the church, not only does He intercede for the church, but He also purifies the church. Jesus purifies the church. Look at it. Verse 14. His head and His hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He purifies his church. You see the whiteness, the glory, the splendor that's displayed here. That word white is translated from a word. Don't picture that it's a picture of Jesus and he's an elderly man. Like we would see white hair. It's blazing. It's brilliant. White often is associated in hair to the corruption that goes on in the body in our elder years. This is not that white. This is a white of blazing brilliance that you couldn't even look at apart from being glorified in His presence and allowed to. It speaks of His purity and He is about purifying the church. He is interested in the purity of the church. He is interested in the purity of the church. He is interested in the purity of the church because He purchased positional purity so that He can transform us in practical purity into conformity to what we already are positionally. He's concerned about that until we get home. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband, to present a pure virgin to Christ. Speaking of the church. He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Why? Why? To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the Word. He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or anything like that, but holy and blameless. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, But now He has reconciled you by His physical body through His death. God went through all of that. Jesus went through all of that. Why? Here it is. To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for Himself a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. We are redeemed, purified, and zealous for good works. Another translation says. He's concerned about that. You know, the modern church might have lost its concern about that, but Jesus is still concerned about that. He's concerned about the purity of His church. He's concerned about sanctification. He's concerned about holy living. He still is. This one that's concerned about it, it says, therefore, Matthew 10, 26, do not be afraid of them since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, this is a verse that ought to make us tremble before the Lord. It's a great witnessing verse. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. He knows, He's in the midst, and He's aware. This is why 
A believer who's in relationship but not fellowship is not much interested in being at church or being around people who are in fellowship because the light that's thrown on them, they don't want. The last thing we want is light when we're walking in darkness. Jesus made that clear because men rub darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. One of the four characteristics of the righteous judgment of God found in Romans chapter 2 is this, that there's coming a day when God will judge what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Wow, absent Christ. Would you want that to all come up in judgment? Everything you've ever done, said, and thought. Absent Christ, it's coming up in judgment. Every bit of it. There's nothing that's hidden that's not going to come to light. God's bringing us to light right now to prepare us for the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment where believers and unbelievers will appear. But He wants to prepare us and get us as close to that virgin bride and close to that chaste bride as we can get until we're in future glory when we will exactly be that chaste bride. He's still concerned about that now. His eyes show that. His eyes here are like what? A flame of fire. What does fire do? It purifies. It purifies. His eyes are like fire. His feet are like fine brass. If you'll recall that when we went through the teaching on the tabernacle, we made the point or the observation that the types in the Bible, brass speaks of judgment. His feet, the Lord's feet itself speaks of judgment. The Bible says that if judgment begins at the house of God, what's the hope for the sinner? He starts with us. That's why the order of that lyric is so important. Wake up the sinner, then call back the saint. That's why it's so important when you're dealing with unrepentant sin with somebody else and you're called upon to try to help them and rescue them, not hurt them, but help them. What is the first step? To rush out and help them? No. The first step is to take a look at your own walk and where you are, get the log that's protruding out of your eye, taken care of first so that you can see to help them with the speck that's in theirs. He starts with us. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. We want the nation to repent. It would be a great thing if the nation repented, but that's not God's interest. God's interest lies in the church repenting. That's His kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, it says, and You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and punishes every son He receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you were without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the fathers of, father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time based on what seemed to be good to them, but He does it for our benefit so that we can share in His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who resist and get upset, they learn nothing. But to the ones who have been trained by it, what does it yield? What you've been asking God for? Christ-likeness, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It yields Christ-likeness. The discipline of the church, discipline in the church, is a part of a loving God who's got eyes of fire, feet of brass, as our intercessory high priest, he knows that unrepentant sin gets in the way, and he wants to deal with it. And we can listen to Him and we can listen to His words or we can refuse to listen to His words and then respond to His belt. But if it comes to that, know this, it's a loving act of a loving God that's dealing with His children as any responsible parent would. And the fruit of it is a righteous life. Hallelujah. Don't let our pride get in the way of that. He not only empowers the church, he intercedes for the church, he purifies the church, but he speaks authoritatively to his church. Look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound 
of many waters. I've been around a lot of waterfalls, and I know you guys have too as well, and you can hear the rumble of a waterfall, and you get to a big waterfall, some of the bigger ones, and you can hear somebody talk right next to you for the rumble of the water. He said this voice is an authoritative voice. When Jesus speaks, we are to listen. That's why he turned around. He was a bond slave. He turned aside to hear what he was, uh, what he was saying. The Bible says even in the transfiguration account, Matthew 17, verse 5, it says that while Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in Him. Listen to Him. Now Peter is like me. That's exactly what I would do. I said, Lord, we need to build a tabernacle. We've seen Your glory. We need to do something like that. And we're all strammed around making plans and God comes from heaven and says, It's not important what you've got to say. It's important what he's got to say. This is my son. Listen to him. We need to be still and quiet. He speaks authoritatively to his church. We get word from God. There's a difference between the word of God and a word from God. A word from God is from a living, active Lord received by a Christian who's in relationship and fellowship with the Lord that is applicable to the moment, straight from Him, and you may not even know how it's to be applied, but you just know it's from Him. And nobody, but nobody can talk you out of it. And they will try. Even people who are well-intended. People who walk by faith. I started to send this out to you the other day, but I ran across a quote quote in my uh, notes that I found that I'm going through all my stuff and trying to throw away stuff and, 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 I, and, and I saw where this I came across, across a quote and I started to send it to you and it says this those who live by faith will encounter the hostility of those who live by sight that is true that is true even within the church that's true maybe even more so the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in this last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and has made the universe through Him. Praise His holy name. He speaks authoritatively to His church. Thank Jesus that He's not up somewhere and we're just looking and groping for a word from Him and we're just confused and doubtful and fearful. If if all of that's happening, I promise you that is not God's fault. If we're in confusion or disarray, He's not the author of it. And it means either He hasn't spoken or we're not listening and He hasn't spoken not because He won't speak but because He's not ready to. And when He gets ready to, if you're looking and listening and waiting, you'll hear Him. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to Him must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those who <coughs> diligently, diligently seek Him. Diligently seek Him. We'll close with this one, even though we don't not get as far as I want to get. He empowers the church. He intercedes for the church. He purifies the church. He speaks authoritatively to this church. And I'm so grateful to know this. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Look at verse 16. He has in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. He has in his right hand seven stars. That right hand is symbolic of authority. It's symbolic of sovereignty. It means in His right hand, the one, the eternal judge, the one whom judgment has been given to, the eternal Son of God, God has given judgment to His Son. And that Son is sovereignly in control of everything that's going on on this earth. I went out and I was trying to load our van yesterday because we made a short trip to go see my mother and father-in-law up at Lake Chateau. It started raining. And it was one of those rains where it was sunshine, but it was raining at the same time. And I saw all those raindrops and the thought just occurred to me that every one of them that are falling right now, God is sovereignly in control of. There's not an errant one of them. God has ordained where every one of them would drop, the number of times they'll drop, and how long they'll fall. He's in charge. He's trustworthy. But He's the head of the church. He is not the figurehead of the church. He's the head of the church. Now some would have Him the figurehead of the church. They're a lot more comfortable with Him that way. 
is not interested in our comfort. He's interested in our righteous walk, which brings comfort, brings joy, brings all the fruits of the Spirit. But he's not interested in our comfort, first and foremost. He's interested in our conformity to himself. And as such, he's the head of the church. And he knows what's going on. He alone knows what's going on. He alone is sovereign. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 23. 20 to 23. He has demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And He's put everything under His feet and appointed Him as the head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And you and I, if we know what we're talking about, would have it no other way. In position, He's the head of the church, but often in practice, He's nothing but the figurehead. We come to Him with our lips, for our hearts are far from Him. That's manifest in a variety of different ways that we've talked about and gone through. He's the head of the church. And let me ask you a question. Is He the head of your life in practice? Or is He just the figurehead? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question for me. I can tell you that. Do I affirm Him as head? Jesus said, you know what? You call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things in which I say. I'm not, that's a sham. But the truth is, as I understand more of my position in Christ, the more I'm going to walk in practical submission. For instance, my disposition toward His return speaks of whether or not I'm in relationship and fellowship with the Lord. If I'm just in relationship and not in fellowship, I don't think about His return and I certainly don't long for it. If I'm in relationship and fellowship, I think about His return because I'm thinking about Him and I long for it. And in the meantime, until He does come, I want Him to effectively use me to warn and teach other people about its direct implications for them. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be active. I'm going to be calibrated toward glory. I'm going to have an eternal mindset. This earth is not my home. I'm going to be a, a, a pilgrim and I'll have a pilgrim mentality. If I'm in relationship and fellowship, he's the head of the church. The Bible says, and you know this uh, passage of Scripture, you're very familiar with it. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Colossians 1.18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the first form for, born from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Every ruler and authority. Praise his holy name. Praise His holy name. Dear ones, we're going to round it out. The others are that He protects His church, that He reflects His glory through the church. And we'll see those in the rest of the description here. But could we just come into agreement with this? Not to what I have to say, because what I have to say is unimportant. But can we come into agreement with this? That in this glorified, victorious Christ, we have everything that we need for life and godliness to the knowledge of Him. Can we come into agreement that if we think there's lack, it's a lack of faith, but not a lack of provision? Can we come into agreement that Jesus is in our midst and that's more than enough? Can we come into agreement that Jesus empowers us and that's more than enough? Because see here, there's a lot of symbolism when we know that. There's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. But here we're directly told what the symbols mean. And we're told in this, in this description that the lamps represent churches. And the message to the churches are the angels to the churches. And those are messengers. And there's, there's a, a, a wide range of views about who those messengers are. But I think the, it's best understood that this, it's this. It is the group of elders, pastors, 
who lead those churches. And the reason that that's got to be the right interpretation is the angel can be interpreted here as messenger. They're messengers to the church. Christ communicates to them in order to communicate to the church. And we, the reason that we can believe and know and understand them to be the pastor of the church and not angels as we understand angels is because they're called to repent. And angels don't have a need of repentance. So if they're called to repent, it must mean that they're the pastors of this church, of these churches. So God is speaking to the lamps, and He's in the middle of them. Those lamps are churches, and the messengers through whom He wants to get the message out are the pastors of the churches. And that God is involved, and we're not on our own, and we lack nothing. And the only reason we ever lack is because of the, the disbelief that we're taught into the fact that we lack. But we have everything that we need. We're equipped. You and I, within this body, are equipped with spiritual gifts. Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus empowers us. Jesus purifies us. He works through the church. And He works through the witness of the church to form His Son in us. And then, ultimately, He speaks authoritatively so we can have direction and not grope around in darkness. He's our head. He's not the figurehead. And our head is coming again. And He's victorious. He's the reigning King. And He's going to put down all evil. Period. End of subject. Hallelujah. And so with all of these things going for us, this begs the question. It begs the question that's posed and answered by implication in Romans chapter 8. And here's the question. This is the question. I'm going to pose it to you. If God be for you, who can be against you? Amen? The whole section, as a matter of fact, you can interpret that this way. Since, comma, God is for you, who can be against you? And you know what? That's an unanswered question. Because the answer is, there's no answer. Because there's no one. God is not against us. And sometimes I think we as Christians need to remind ourselves of that. That God's not up in heaven standing in opposition to everything that's going on in our life in opposition to us to make it as miserable and as hard as He can on this life just because He gets jollies out of that. And He's just that way and He's unapproachable, distant, and unsympathetic to what we go through. We know from right here in the very vision Himself that He is none of that. He is in the middle of it. He's sympathetic. He cares. And He's promised this. He who began a good work in us is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, the God who was once against us, see this is the vestige of the flesh, isn't it? This is what's left over from the old man for us to think like this. In Adam, God's against you. It's true. Bad place to be. And we were all once there. But as believers, the God who was once against us and who was our enemy. And by the way, if God's your enemy, you're in trouble. But the God who was once against us in Adam, it says that. The flesh is at enmity with God. If you're at enmity with somebody, it means it's a state that can't be altered. I can be an enemy from somebody and we can become friends and reconcile. But if you're at enmity, it's a condition that can't be reconciled. And there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. So the God who was once against us and had an airtight case against us is now has an airtight case for us. So therefore, when Jesus, when the devil drags up the past defeat or the present defeat you may have experienced or going through, you don't have to listen to that because it's from the enemy. And it's contrary to the blood of Christ. He is now for us. And it's evidenced in the vision that John got. Can you imagine how encouraging? Here's the thing. This letter, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is intended to be written to churches that are all in modern-day Turkey. And if you look at a map, if you were running the Pony Express, if you were running the Pony Express, and you wanted to get word out to all the churches in the area, the cycle that you would go through is the way those churches are listed right there. You'd start at Ephesus, and you'd go around, and if you look at them on a map, they're like a circle. Not a perfect circle, but they're in a circle. And what he's saying is, I want to get word to a persecuted, downtrodden, discouraged church. And I want you to tell them this. Here's what I want you to tell them. But let me tell you what I'm like. Everything that they're involved in, there are two of them that need 
that are commended, the rest of them need to repent. But here's what they need to repent over. They need to repent over their lack of trust in me. The vision of the one who's standing before you right now because they've been duped and had by the devil into thinking that they are recipients of defeat instead of trophies of grace. You might feel victorious. I mean, you might feel defeated this morning and you might feel this, that, or the other. But your feelings will lie to you. And when your feelings don't line up with the truth, go with the truth. Amen? God is for you as a redeemed believer. And if He's for you, who can be against you? If you're here and you've never repented of your sins and put faith in Jesus Christ, He's against you. But it doesn't have to remain that way. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, the one that God hung on that cross and sacrificed in our place, you can now transition by faith from being a person of enmity with God to being a son of God. Hallelujah. Through the Son of God. Amen. Is that not the best you've done? We're going to have a Lord's Supper in just a minute. It's for people who've repented and put faith in Christ. That's what it is. It's a table prepared for our family. God's sake. Those who've been bought and purchased by His blood. If you've never been bought and purchased by His blood, then watch what's going on. Listen to what God might be saying to you, is saying to you to draw you to, to draw you to repentance and faith in Jesus. To admit you're a sinner. Repentance just means that you come into agreement in your mind that everything that God says about you is true. That you're condemned, you're a rebel, you're a murderer, and you deserve nothing but hell from Him in eternal punishment. I agree with you, God. Everything I thought about me, now I found out from you, is worse than what I thought. But I agree with you. And you turn to Christ and ask Him for mercy. And if you do that by faith, based on the death that He died on the cross and taking the sin of the elect, and you ask Him by faith to extend mercy to you, He will. And you'll go from being in Adam to being in Christ. You will be going from the enemy of God to a son of God. Mm -hmm. If you've not done that, watch what happens. Don't take the Lord's Supper. But watch what happens while we do it. Because listen, you're not here because God's trying to resist you. You're here because God's drawing you. Amen?